Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. After the special joint edition with the Lib Dem pod looking at cross-party cooperation last time, it's back to the normal format this time. And welcome back to Duncan Brack for one of our historical dives into a former party leader. So welcome to the show, Duncan. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be back. Now, having discussed Joe Grimmond and David Steele with Duncan previously, this time we're headed into the 19th century with Lord John Russell. He served in government for at least part of every decade from the 1830s through to the 1860s, including two spells as Prime Minister 13 years apart. Let's start with the obvious question, Duncan, because it was your suggestion we talk about Lord John Russell this time. Why him of all the other former party leaders we could have picked? Well, I think there are two main reasons. And no, 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 no. There's one reason, isn't it, that you've recently <laughs> written a book chapter about him. Well, that is that was <laughs> going to be my first reason. So, yes, I was asked by Ian Dale to write the chapter on Lord John Russell um, for his book, The Prime Ministers, 55 Leaders, 55 Authors, 300 Years of History. So there's a chapter on every prime minister. And... Uh, there are some, I recommend it to your listeners wholeheartedly, some really good chapters in it. There are some that aren't very good. And I have to say my first preference was for Campbell Bannerman. And I would recommend you just don't read the chapter on Campbell Bannerman. It is truly awful. Um, but uh, there are lots of <laughs> Let's hope the author of that chapter isn't a listener to this podcast. Well, it's David Bannerman, if you remember, who was the Tory who then defected to UKIP and then um, went back to the Tories. And he is a descendant of Campbell Bannerman. But oh, yeah. really, let's not go into that chapter. Um, so I knew I knew a bit about Russell before that, obviously, but uh, I know a lot more now. So it's a kind of easy gig for me to do. But I think the other reason for doing it is that I think Russell tends to be a bit forgotten. Uh, when we look back at 19th century liberal history, we tend to remember primarily Gladstone, obviously, and probably Palmerston. But I think Russell ranks along there, alongside both of those as one of the three most significant liberal leaders of the 19th century. Yeah, I was quite struck when refreshing my memory about Lord John Russell just before recording this show that he stretches right from the in the early 19th century being one of the young sort of radical reformers on on the Whig side of the political divide, so pre-Great Reform Act and so on, through to you know, having played a major role in getting the Great Reform Act through Parliament, being Prime Minister himself twice, the formation of the modern Liberal Party. And it's like he almost spans in many ways the politics of the 18th century to the politics of the 20th century. If, if you say, how did British politics change between those two centuries? almost all of the major features of the change Russell was around for and a player in in some ways. It, it's quite a remarkable career. So let's, assuming, however, that most listeners are not that familiar with the details of this career, why don't you kick off, Duncan, with a little bit of a pricey of who he was and what he did? Sure. So he was born in 1792. He was the third son of the Duke of Bedford. Um, and therefore he was given the courtesy title of Lord John Russell. So he wasn't a peer in his own right, but the son of a peer. Um, incidentally, he was the grandfather of the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the great-grandfather of Conrad Russell, who uh, many of your listeners probably will remember with great affection, a Liberal Democrat peer who died, what, about 15 years ago, yeah. I think? Um, but Does that mean there will have been role. some Christmas Day lunch conversations with all three of them there won't quite will there I don't think no Lord John died before I Conrad mean my before. goodness what a dinner table <laughs> conversation that would have been with all if they had all three of them around the table that would have been absolutely uh, great yeah but no it so, wouldn't quite be that 
he was born uh, prematurely, actually, after just seven months, mm. uh, and as a result was was very short, which was often commented on. Uh, he was known um, as the widow's mite for um, some of his career, and don't ask me to explain that phrase. Um, and he was in somewhat delicate health at various times, which did actually limit him a bit. But um, he, nevertheless, despite all that, he managed to be an MP for the whole period between 1813, from the age of 21, to 1861, with a couple of short gaps. And then he was ennobled in 1861, made appear in his own right um, as Earl Russell, um, and obviously stayed that until he died in 1878. And then I think the, the kind of first reason why he is so significant is because he played a major role in reforming the British state. Um, so he was uh, for kind of the first 17 years or so, he was in opposition because the Tories were um, forming the governments throughout that period, the long period post-Napoleonic Wars when they stayed in power. And he was increasingly a voice uh, against their more oppressive measures. Uh, for example, the Peterloo uh, massacre. He always stood for reform of uh, the electoral system, and he argued that Peterloo wouldn't have been, would perhaps not ever have happened if Manchester had had proper representation in Parliament, which it didn't at the time. Uh, he moved a successful um, abolition of the Test and Corporation Acts, which limited public offices to believers in the Anglican Church. Um, he argued for um, a universal system of primary education, uh, so quite a lot of things. Um, but then in 1830, I think I'm right, mm. the uh, Whigs returned to power, first under Gray, when Wellington resigns. And because of his long-standing uh, support for parliamentary reform, he was given a role, even though not in the cabinet, he was a sort of junior minister at the time, he was given the key role on the committee that drafted the legislation that became the Great Reform Act. And then he drafted the, the successive versions of that because it kept on being defeated uh, in the Commons or the Lords. Um, and eventually basically was the main architect of the Great Reform Act in 1832. Um, and as I'm sure lots of your listeners will remember, that was absolutely critical. Not so much in increasing the size of the electorate, and it went up from about 400,000 to 650,000, but more in disenfranchising the so-called rotten boroughs in, in just abolishing them completely. The um, tiny seats, which had, some of them had electors of like 11 people, um, mostly in the pocket of local landlords. Um, so these were just pocket boroughs. The, the, Boroughmongers sort of offered them to. Um, as know, as I MP. did um, my history PhD many years ago on the electoral system in the first half of the 19th century, I'm tempted to digress in many ways on this. Well, you point. will know more about it than I do. But so perhaps do. the point that's most relevant to Lord John Russell is, is as you say, Duncan, that legislation was phenomenally complicated and very technical. And so I think his achievement in steering it through is a bit like the achievement of leaders of the House or other government ministers in more modern times steering immensely complicated, say, European legislation through Parliament. And the details were, well, there is, certainly at the time I did my PhD, there was still a lot of controversy about how much impact certain particular details had, especially the subtleties of the interrelationship between the workings of the franchise in, in different constituencies and whether or not that was deliberate or accidental. But I think even if you take the view that Russell was really on top of the detail and that everything that happened was deliberate with the legislation, I think there is still a bit of a question that it's like if you were to tell the story of the rise and and sort of setback of, say, pro-Europeanism in Britain in the late 20th and then early 21st century, 
you can point to people who Russell like played a major role in steering difficult legislation through Parliament. But fundamentally, the, the course of Britain's relationship with Europe has been influenced and driven by bigger issues than that. And so how influential really and this may be a theme that we return to repeatedly through this podcast is Russell was there and present but how influential really was he as a you know, given all the other pressures there were for parliamentary reform had he died suddenly in a you know a tragic accident uh, on 31st of December 1829 would the Great Reform Act have really been that different? I think that's a fair question. I mean, it's obviously impossible to judge because um, yeah, you don't know, you never know what would have happened in the absence of people. I think um, I think the pressure for reform was building up. I mean, clearly the uh, electoral system didn't pro- properly reflect the views, particularly of the rising kind of industrial middle classes, who were the kind of main gainers really from the Great Reform Act uh, and from Reform Acts, maybe the Second Reform Act as well, um, and they were becoming increasingly. Um, demanding of representation. So I think at some point it would have cracked, the system would have cracked. Um, I mean, I think Russell was important. He was, uh, he was a good, you know, he was a good debater in Parliament. In fact, he was given the role of leading on the Great Reform Act legislation because the leader of the House of Commons, Althorpe, just wasn't a very good speaker. Um, And uh, contemporaries said that, you know, he was intelligent, he was fearless. He was a good speaker and debater in Parliament. Uh, in 1841, his chief whip, uh, staring at the possibility of, of defeat, wrote in his diary, but Johnny counts for 25 himself, which so balances parties. And remember, this was a period of, of uh, very you know, far, mm. we didn't have the kind of disciplined party system we have at the moment. So MPs would switch sides on lots of issues. So actually, uh, an individual's performance in the House of Commons really mattered at the time. So I think, and some of the votes on the on the reform legislation were really quite narrowly passed. I think yeah. you can create I, a credible I did a, argument um, that he would a, have. Uh, he did make a difference. Yeah, I did a what if chapter, didn't I, for you one did. of your books of, of many yes. years ago? But there was one vote on the Great Reform Act that where there was a margin of one in yes. it. Um, the thing that still amazes me about that vote is that it was the equivalent of, say, a vote on whether or not Brexit should go ahead now yeah. in terms of a massive political issue with widespread public attention as well you know even even back in the 19th century with politics being a much less public business overall a huge public attention and yet quite a lot of MPs didn't vote at all in that division it's the whole culture of politics then was massively was massively different I, I guess my point boils down to that sort of Russell wasn't really say a Gladstone that you know had Gladstone and not existed, Ireland would still have been a big political issue, undoubtedly. It it does seem, though, that it's a lot easier to make the case that how British governments tried to deal with Ireland was massively influenced by the existence of William Gladstone, that he, he added something to those bigger, longer-term forces. I think the question with Russell is whether he really did, um, but maybe we should go on to some later bits of his life, see what else you can roll out in in his defence, <laughs> in terms of his influence and importance. Certainly, I have a go. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's right. He wasn't on the scale of Gladstone. Um, and it's also worth remembering that during Russell's first period as Prime Minister, he never had the majority, which Gladstone always did. So, I mean, that limited 
what he could do. And actually, I think Russell's record as a minister is probably a bit more impressive than his record as prime minister. Um, but, you know, you have to have people like Russell uh, accepted. Maybe somebody else would have done what he did, but somebody had to do it. Um, and I think in, in other issues like education, which wasn't there wasn't such an obvious move towards a universal system of primary education at the time. He was well ahead of his time, I think, in arguing for that. So I think you could argue he made a difference. Go on then. Argue away. <laughs> So he was in the cabinet between 1830 and 1841 under Gray and Melbourne. And uh, I said he was one of the main uh, sort of leaders of the reform movement uh, or that sort of general group of MPs known as reformers. So this was all very, very loose, as well as the Great Reform Act we had, um, uh, allowing uh, nonconformists to have their own marriage ceremonies. And uh, again, your listeners, I'm sure, will be aware that religious issues are much more important in the first half, well, throughout the 19th century, really, than they are now. So there was a long process of of allowing more toleration for people who weren't Church of England um, uh, adherents. And the um, uh, Catholic emancipation, to giving Catholics the right to vote, was passed in the 1820s that Russell supported it. He wasn't particularly uh, important in that. Uh, he brought in the National Register of Births, Deaths and Marriages for everyone, uh, which we still have now. Uh, before that, it was entirely records kept by churches, Church of England, uh, old parish registers. Um, he reformed local government to the extent he could. He brought in uh, better supervision of the police, of drainage, of cleaning, all good Liberal Democrat. Uh, community politics type things. I said he argued for a national system of primary education. He was able to um, get, establish a system of school inspectors and government funding for limited funding for school buildings and for um, training of teachers. Um, and he was an early adherent again, and this is important, of the repeal of the Corn Laws, the uh, import duties on imports of grain that were brought in during the Napoleonic Wars um, and effectively became a major controversial issue of the kind of 1840s, 1830s, 1840s. Um, and he gave a commitment to do that just before Melbourne's government fell and actually possibly fortunately in the position where Robert Peel, this, the um, Tory prime minister who replaced Melbourne, then himself became convinced of the need to repeal the Corn Laws, partly because that would reduce the prices for uh, the price of food for the population, for working people. Um, industrialists obviously supported it because it meant they could uh, possibly pay their workers less or get more out of their workers. Um, the landowners obviously uh, opposed it because you know they they were able to sell their own grain at higher prices, but they were primarily Tories. So it was a really important issue. It split the Tory party in the end when Peel um, argued for uh, repealing them and essentially kept the Tories out of power mostly for most of the next 30 years or so. So um, it was quite a smart move really for Russell not to be in government when that was happening, but he was um, a strong supporter uh, and helped to sort of face down the Whigs, some of the Whig landowners in his own party who were dubious about it. I guess that leads on to probably the most significant question mark over Russell's record, which is the famine in Ireland. That, as, as you say, Duncan, the desire to repeal the Corn Laws was in many ways prompted by famine in Ireland and food shortages and hence a desire to lower the price of food um, to, 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 to deal with that. But if you look at the arc of the the, the the famine in Ireland. I mean, the the numbers are just horrific in terms of death and, and huge emigration as well as a result. I think it's a quarter of Ireland's population, isn't it? Either died or or left the country, uh, which I just unimaginable, really. If, if 
that would be the UK's population is what now 60 million or so that would be 15 million people dying or leaving it's uh, you know a massively scarring feature in Irish history <clears throat> it's probably the biggest or certainly one of the biggest peacetime disasters in UK the UK history in general Ireland at the time being part of the UK and you really have to scrabble around for things like the Black Death to try and find you know other other disasters up there comparable with it and although as you say repeal of the Cornwalls was done by Robert Peel a conservative government but then that split and fell Russell then came into power and in fact was prime minister and he just he, he didn't tackle the famine successfully did he so that's a really interesting question. So he becomes prime minister in 1846 and is PM for the next six years. So basically through the worst of the Irish famine. And um, <clears throat> certainly the image is the kind of history is that um, the British government took the opportunity for the famine, motivated by this kind of Whig laissez-faire philosophy, non-intervention, mm. keep government spending low. They, uh, they uh, at, the, at the best, didn't respond to it properly and at the worst if you believe the kind of conspiracy theorists actually um used the famine as an excuse to keep down the irish uh, basically and we we're actually happy to see lots of them die or emigrate uh, and that's a kind of um, story that's particularly <clears throat> strong amongst the irish population in sort of emigrant population and their descendants in the united states and canada uh, and i think there are good reasons to doubt all of those stories um, because what you have to look at is the condition the government found themselves in. Now, um, the potato crop started failing when Peel was in power. And initially, in the first couple of years, government spending on imports of corn and grain to Ireland was very, very high, actually. And they responded quite well to the early stages of the famine. Um, but by the time Russell takes over, 25% of government expenditure is going on Irish famine relief. And there is a, uh, an economic depression starts in 1846, I think it was, just as he becomes to power. So government um, starts running out of money, basically. And so you have to look at the options that were able, uh, available to him. So, you know, if you need to increase government spending, you either cut spending on something else, you increase taxes or you raise a loan. Uh, you start borrowing more. And Russell tried to do all those three things and they all failed for reasons that I think we probably understand better now because we have more of a theory of macroeconomics, but of course the, the people running the government then didn't. So the first issue, if you're trying to cut government expenditure, um, well, 50% of government spending at the time was going on debt interest from debt accumulated during the Napoleonic Wars. So you can't cut that. If you start doing that, then uh, you're risking a, a sort of bond market uh, panic, uh, interest rates go up, you end up paying more. Um, people won't service your debt, uh, you know, really serious problem. 25%, I said, was on Irish relief anyway, and 25% was on everything else the government did, which of course at the time was primarily uh, the army and navy and foreign service. Uh, so there wasn't, and also they had been cut back quite savagely under the Peel governments, the Tory governments before, so there actually just wasn't much left to do there. So in the end, they did end up cutting um, uh, expenditure on famine relief, and you can kind of see why. But they tried, the first response was to try and raise a big loan. 
um, which was a disaster. Um, government, the government was running a budget deficit at the time and it was a trade deficit as well. The bond markets didn't believe the British government could service the debt. So they were simply not able to run, raise the money. Um, at, the time, at the same time, interest rates went up because people started panicking. So the debt interest that the government had to pay on its existing debt from the Napoleonic Wars also went up. So it was a complete disaster. So then the last thing they tried was to raise uh, tax. Now at the time, income tax was still seen as a temporary expedient. Uh, again, something introduced during the Napoleonic Wars. And it had to be renewed every year in the House of Commons. Uh, and remember, Russell didn't have a majority here in, when, in, when he was in government. Uh, also, it didn't apply to Ireland. Uh, they didn't pay income tax. So obviously, if you're going to raise income tax in England to pay for Ireland's problem, uh, that is a bit, bit of an issue. So Russell's first attempt was to try and raise income tax or to get the Irish MPs to raise income tax in or to apply income tax to Ireland. And they refused. They just wouldn't go for it. And he didn't have the majority to put that through. He tried to raise income tax for English, and that didn't work either. He didn't have a majority. So, you know, he just running out of options at the time. Uh, in the end, they cut public expenditure because there was really, I think, almost nothing else they could do. And I think people who are critical of the uh, his government's response to the Irish famine have to answer that question. What actually could he have done, given the political circumstances? In the end, what they tried to do, I said, they cut expenditure. They also tried to raise... Uh, money through uh, the poor law rates in Ireland, so local taxation, which the government could do, didn't have to get a majority in the Commons for that. But by then it was too late, the economy was essentially collapsing, so they just weren't able to raise any significant sums of money. So it was a huge tragedy, but I said, you know, they really tried to address it. Although had, um, had France gone to war with Britain at that time, I'm sceptical that the British government wouldn't have found a way to find. Well, I think the difference there, the House of Commons, that would have been easier to persuade the House of Commons to vote for it, or yeah, the House of Lords. I mean, and, and this is obviously a, a regular critique, I guess, particularly from the left about governments not funding things, is the yes, but, but you always find money for a war. Um, and I think, you know, given the scale of devastation in Ireland, that is probably one of the situations where that comparison is is a fair political critique to make. Now, as you say, he didn't have a majority, but that doesn't necessarily, ex you know, there are many great political leaders in many different countries who are prime minister or the equivalent of prime minister for periods, even extended periods of time without a majority, and yet managed to make it work. And, you know, some of, our, I guess, the most famous examples of politicians without a majority who get eulogized for how they manage to work around it you think about say Lyndon Johnson where getting civil rights through the Senate civil rights legislation through the Senate in the US in the 20th century now technically his party had a majority but there wasn't a majority for civil rights legislation and he found a way to put a majority together it, it does feel like that um for all that there are excuse you know decent excuses for russell that fundamentally one of the truly great prime ministers would have been able to do more and it's possibly true and i'm not familiar enough with the kind of ins and outs of the uh, efforts they went to during the famine to deal with the issue uh, i mean that is maybe true and it is also true that i think uh, russell became 
Um, I guess as many political leaders do, I mean, they become they become less effective <laughs> as they get older. And one of his, uh, I mean, I've talked about his qualities um, as a good speaker and debater and intelligent and fearless and so on. But he was quite impulsive. Um, and the older he got, the more impulsive he got. He was not always very consistent. He was not always very good at dealing with his colleagues, um, partly because he had a, a very firm belief that um, because of his beliefs and his family's history, um, that he was, uh, he always had to be in the lead of the kind of movement for reform. Um, so that led to him not treating, not always consulting with subordinates or colleagues and uh, making impulsive gestures sometimes. And that probably didn't help. And yes, perhaps somebody else could have engineered a, a majority in the House of Commons for um, for uh, income tax raises. Uh, of course, the other option that I didn't mention they could have done was raise import duties. Mm. But of course, they just cut import duties on food. And you know, raising the price of imported food doesn't make sense when you're trying to deal with the famine. And Britain at the time was a net importer of food. So all I would say is that they tried harder than I think many people give them credit for. One of the problems, of course, that uh, when you're, uh, because there were so many Irish emigrants, um, where did they go? The obvious places were either England or the United States and Canada. Australia and New Zealand weren't really open up to, to mass colonization at the time. Lots of Irish people did go to England and they tended to be the poorer people. Um, but the richer people or the middle in, middle classes tended not to do that because a lot of them owed income tax arrears or tax arrears or some kind of arrears, uh, poor law rate relief uh, to the um, to the British government. So they tended to emigrate to the United States. So you had a whole bunch of well-educated, articulate um, Irish emigrants who really had it in for the British government. Mm -hmm. And they created this story about how it was really, you know, an attempt at genocide against the Irish population, which I really think it wasn't. Mm, I, I'm sure there is much more we could say about this. But as you say, neither of us are experts on this particular topic. So maybe we should move on to the rest of Russell's career. So that obviously massively dominates his time as prime minister. Yes. But are there other things you would call out from that? Yeah, he did manage to do a few other things as well. And he often took the opportunity of uh, private members legislation introduced by uh, supporters. So, for example, other things he managed to achieve during his time as prime minister was limiting factory hours for women and children, uh, bringing in state funding for school teacher training for um, non-Anglican church, non-Church of England schools. Um, uh, he carried on the move towards free trade and the corn laws were about grain imports, but his government reduced imports on sugar duties as well. He abolished the Navigation Acts, which limited, um, which said that only British ships could land products in British ports. So again, that it contributed to the expansion of free trade. And actually, a lot of what happened at the time underpinned the long mid-Victorian economic boom, which people like Gladstone was then, and liberal governments under him were then to benefit from later. Um, he introduced the Central Board of Health for the first time that, that later became the Health Ministry. So, you know, he did, I think he had a reasonable um, record actually as Prime Minister, um, given, I said, bearing in mind that he never had a, um, a majority. And we've we've obviously talked about Ireland, the, the big the big question mark over his legacy in terms of other issues that particularly color how people now see politicians from the past and so thinking in terms of the 19th century especially issues around uh, slavery giving women the vote and so on how 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 recognizable is russell's 19th century liberalism to our 21st century liberalism 
So that's an interesting question. I haven't found there any evidence that he ever talked about women's enfranchisement. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a consistent supporter of, of uh, increasing the right to vote uh, amongst men. And that was really the mainstream of public debate at the time. So although he, he defended the 1832 Reform Act um, so vigorously uh, a few years later that he, he became known as Finality Jack, mm -hmm. Um, but he then became convinced of the need for further reform. And actually, he moved successive reform bills throughout the 1850s and 1860s to widen the franchise further and to do more kind of redistribution of seats to reflect the, um, the different patterns of, of growth of population, primarily in the industrial cities. Uh, so he's a very consistent report, uh, uh, supporter of that. Um, he generally you know, spoke out for freedom of thought, conscience and religion. He uh, moved a motion for the abolition of slavery, uh, I think about five years before it was actually achieved uh, in the 18, uh, well, it was 1833, wasn't it? So he was talking about it in the 1820s. So he's pretty consistent there. As I said, um, the proposals to enfranchise women were, I think, first introduced to the House of Commons in the 1860s, weren't they, and by John Stuart Mill, the great Victorian. Yeah, Mill, although, Oxford. I mean, there, there was some controversy over whether the Great Reform Act actually technically was a slight step backwards in terms of using uh, words like men and male in the act and there's the, the history of parliament trust if i remember rightly has got an interesting piece on its website about to what extent did women actually occasionally vote prior to that yes because because the election rules were a little bit like the rules for monarchical succession as in it was very clearly based on the idea of giving more power to men than women but occasionally under very special circumstances maybe a woman could sneak in <laughs> uh, and and certainly for my PhD, I remember you know reading this account where it sounded like uh, a group of women discussing you know re uh, discussing on an election day going to vote, um, and it and it's quite hard to read into that context anything other than at least one of them being a landowner uh, was was actually able to vote. In that election so i think that but yeah that that's very much sort of in in the, the footnotes of history whether technically 1832 was a slight step back but it does strike me that through all of that local government reform that russell was involved in in various ways that had say john stuart mill been doing it there would have been you know mo ways in which women would have been allowed a bit of the vote in because that's what we see later in the 19th century that a lot that the male politicians were much more willing male mps in particular <laughs> and peers much more willing to see women have the vote at the local government level and i think the fact that russell did so many of those changes without leaving behind as you say any public track record of being in favor of female enfranchisement is a pretty well, good clue that he wasn't really bothered about it yeah but but i mean there's always a danger in looking back at events um coming up for 200 years ago with a kind of a lens that's our political beliefs that are formed in the 20th 21st centuries i mean it just it was not one of the big issues yeah. of the first half of the 19th century or even most of the 19th century to be honest i mean mill tried to amend the second reform act didn't he in the in the 1860s yeah. and failed did not get a huge yeah. amount of support it was there were there were a lot of kind of other reform issues slavery um, religious liberties freedom of thought uh, those kind of things that tended to attract attention. And I don't think uh, it would be completely wrong to think Russell was an opponent of enfranchisement of women. It just wasn't part of the political, the kind of even the reform mainstream at the time. It was very slowly beginning to emerge, I think. Yeah.
slavery is maybe the better yardstick then as you say on yeah. which to judge him because as you say i mean it, we always have to be careful about importing current values on judging people from the past as you know it's quite a controversial <laughs> exercise but i think on slavery you know one can fairly say that was very much something that people were aware of and if you were not in favor of the abolition of slavery the well i just didn't really notice or i didn't think about it so excuse doesn't you know doesn't wash um, yes that's absolutely right yeah in, in a way that i it always puzzles me with american political history how the uh founding the, the the slavery slave owning founding fathers of the u.s have generally had a remarkably kind <laughs> yes uh, indeed. buy from history as if i know obviously it is particularly controversial at times in in even current u.s politics some of their slave owning records but generally speaking there's quite a generous buy given, which which I think is hard to justify, given that you know, at the, you know, at the same time, slavery was a very much a live political issue in Britain, and I mean, William Wilberforce was hugely cru crucial to its abolition, but but people like Russell do seem to have played quite important subsidiary roles in that, don't they? Yes, I think that's right, absolutely. And while we're talking about um, Russell's political beliefs, mm. we ought to remember, I think, the other major reason why he's important um uh, alongside his record in reform of the british state which is his record in bringing together the uh, forces that became the liberal mm. party at the time because um again your listeners will probably be aware of this but politics was was very loose at the time so we didn't have disciplined parties at all there wasn't a mass electorate to appeal to anyway so you had quite loose groupings of mps who came together and then split apart on different issues uh, and it was always quite tricky to uh, manufacture a majority for a um, uh, administration and they could never be sure of it but on the kind of liberal side or what then be later became known as the liberal side you had three or four major groups of MPs there were the Whigs which Russell identified with so these were the kind of inheritors of the people who argued for parliamentary supremacy uh, over the monarchy so the right of parliament um, instead of the right of the crown and you know in in contrast to the Tories who tended to argue the other way around and they can trace their origins right back to the 17th century you're a historian of this period aren't you mm. so you will know more than I did um, but I had a good record generally of 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 kind of extending the belief in the rights of parliament against the crown into generally yeah. the rights of individual liberty of property freedom of thought freedom of conscience freedom of religion you had a bunch of more tend to be and a lot of them tend to be aristocrats uh, and, and landowners because those were the main people who were involved in politics at the time you had a bunch of more sort of middle class reformers and radicals who are tended to argue for more radical positions on parliamentary reform, perhaps universal suffrage, which was becoming an issue at the time, uh, more frequent elections, things like that. Um, quite loose, often disagreed with themselves quite violently. They'd really be at home in the modern Liberal Democrats. Um, difficult to corral, but increasingly uh, increasing in numbers. Uh, you had Irish MPs who, by and large, tended to be on the reform side because they got more out of Whig governments than they got out of Tory government. Um, <clears throat> and then after um, Peel uh, repealed the, porn, the Corn Laws and split his party, um, the followers of Peel, the Peelites, uh, which included people like Gladstone, um, formerly Tories, now peeling peeling away. Sorry, that was that was that, um, very good, Duncan. <clears throat> breaking away from the Conservative Party. They formed their own group in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, and Russell was 
I think, a key figure in bringing these people together. Now, the um, the, the key meeting was in 1859 in Willis's Rooms in St. James in, uh, uh, in London. And the, uh, a few years ago, the history group managed to uh, get a plaque erected on the building that's now on the site of the, the building where that meeting was held. And that brought the Whigs, Radicals and Peelites together to agree to bring down Derby's Conservative government. And that is generally held to uh, mark the beginning of the, the Liberal Party. But there were earlier attempts, and particularly Russell was important in what was known as the Litchfield House Compact in 1835, mm. to bring same kind of thing, really, to bring Whigs, Reformers, Radicals, Irish together um, to defeat Conservative government. So he was a really important figure there. And I think he was important because he was a Whig. He was, you know, came out of that aristocratic reforming tradition, but he also held quite radical reforming views from the point of view of Whigs. Um, in fact, so radical that some Whigs uh, then themselves uh, found his views unacceptable and left to form the Conservative Party, uh, to join the Conservative Party rather, uh, and they included Stanley, who later became um, Lord Derby, Tory Prime Minister. Um, uh, so therefore, he was tended to be more trusted by the radicals and reformers as well. So I think that's another thing to his credit that he can the role he played in the 1830s and 40s in bringing together a more coherent, cohesive liberal party. Yeah, and I think this is the ground on which the case for Russell being of major importance is strongest. You know, I, I earlier expressed a little bit of scepticism about the extent to which other reforms he was involved in would have in some form happened anyway, had he not been there. But I think when you're looking at bringing together different uh, disruptive, <laughs> fractious, etc. personalities, then in turn, the personality of the key players in that matters, especially. And in that sense, I would draw a parallel a bit with maybe the politics in the 1970s and the 1980s, that there were clearly big long-term forces that were undermining the then two-party system in British politics. But the particular course of events that happened, I think it's fair to say, did depend a lot on the personalities of David Steele and Roy Jenkins in particular. Um, if the Liberal Party in the late 70s had been led by, say, Clement Freud, Liberal MP at the time. I think it, that what would have panned out with the SDP and the Alliance would have most likely taken a very different course. And, and in that sense, it seems to me quite plausible to say that the modern Liberal Party wouldn't have been founded had it not been for Russell. And had it not been founded, those, those three, four different factions wouldn't have necessarily coalesced into yes. one party. One or more of them might have ended up joining the Tories. You can imagine a world in which both the Whigs and Peelites might have ended up with the Tories, partly because there are individuals from both of those who did. And, and I think Russell and others, therefore, in as much as we can be sure about any what-ifs in history, but Russell and others most likely do deserve a significant amount of credit for changing the way British politics worked by creating the Liberal, what became the Liberal Party. Yes, I think that's true, actually. And I think it's enormously to Russell's credit that if we move the story on a bit into the 1850s, so his government falls in 1852, and partly it's brought down by the rivalry between him and Palmerston, who is, is the Foreign Secretary at the time, growing in support. And they really, they really didn't like each other, um, to put it mildly. And uh, although I mean, they are such contrasting personalities, aren't they? I mean, Palmerston yeah. is the it, 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 Palmerston is sort of what the Boris Johnson <laughs> of the time. And I'm thinking in terms of both general flamboyance and also um, 
a lively private life if i can put That's it that way to safely yes. bracket both both palmerston and, and johnson whilst um by contrast i guess actually robin cook is probably the politician that most strikes me as being at the sort of Lord John Russell type equivalent. If you think about Robin Cook's tenure as leader of the House and the work he did on getting electoral, all sorts of other bits of electoral reform other than sadly for the House of Commons, but you know, the Cook-McLennan talks in the 1990s and all the reform that led to it, it. Yeah, Robin Cook and Boris Johnson are sort of the equivalent of Russell and Palmerston, I think. Except I would say that Palmerston was considerably more competent and able than Boris Johnson, but I, I understand the comparison. And also more, uh, e more with an even greater tendency to send the British Navy into things <laughs> than even Johnson and Priti Patel have, though. But uh, that was a different age. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, but I said that you're quite right, and they really didn't like each other. I think they're, they're, good, com they're good comparisons. Um, so, in fact, they even conspired against each other to, to bring down, to defeat motions that each other was moving. And you just can't imagine that happening in today's politics but i said politics was much looser then but despite all that i mean one um after palmerston stopped one of russell's uh education reforms in the 1850s one whig described russell as being like a concentrated essence of lemon so there was a lot of personality clashes there but despite that in 1859 when the election made it clear that if whigs radicals and peelites combined they could force a majority and get derby out of government and the issue they did that were, uh, did that over was over support for italian independence um, in the war against austria um, so a good international uh, issue bringing liberals together um, Russell accepted that he would have to work under Palmerston. In fact, Anne Palmerston did the same. They agreed not to serve under anybody else, but each of them would be happy to serve under the other. Mm -hmm. So despite the horrible, you know, previous 10 years of rivalry, so on, they managed, both of them managed to, to um, put their private uh, feelings aside. Uh, and in fact, Queen Victoria attempted to avoid uh, appointing either of them to be prime minister. She called them these two terrible old men. Uh, but in the end, there was nobody else who could have commanded a majority. So Palmerston was appointed to prime minister. Russell comes back as foreign secretary. And actually, they worked really well together for the following six years um, and had a pretty good record. Managed to avoid getting entangled in the American Civil War. Um, generally, it was a it was really reasonably effective government. Yeah, so I think we should probably begin to wrap this up. It's been a fascinating meander through the 19th century. Well, if I just, let's just finish his career as prime minister. Mm, I was going to say, let's just, we've, we've yeah. got his final period as prime minister to cover, which was not, not quite a high mode, was it? Sadly, it wasn't. So Palmerston dies, uh, I think, just before the 1865 election. So Russell is the obvious uh, person to take over and he becomes prime minister again. And he's quite elderly man is in his 70s so he's trying to get one final big achievement done and again he tries to bring in reform parliamentary reform so widen the electorate again redistribute seats uh, and they tried uh, legislation and sadly they did not have a very large majority and a bunch of liberal reactionary rebels shall we say were worried about i mean i it's a bit unfair to characterize them as reactionaries there were genuine concerns about the extent to which um, people who were too poor to pay income tax, for example, giving them the vote, would they just not vote for, you know, endless government expenditure without bearing any um, impact of it? There was worries about the extent to which working men were influenced by their um, 
their bosses and so on. I mean, they had genuine concerns about it, but there were enough of them to defeat the legislation. Russell leaves uh, government in June 1866, replaced by a Tory government under Disraeli, who then betrays the liberal rebels and actually brings in more extreme uh, legislation, more extreme reform legislation, extends the electorate even more than anyone was thinking. Yeah, it, at the time. it is, I have and to that's say, I think one of... It is one of the funniest moments in British political history yeah, that, as absolutely. you say, that you have a group of rebels who stop parliamentary reform and in doing so put the Conservatives in power. And you, you'd have thought, this is a safe rebellion. We've we've succeeded. And then what does the Conservative Prime Minister do? It is a fantastically um, self-defeating rebellion. It was indeed. And indeed, the Liberals then won a big majority in the 1868 election. Um, and were in power for most of the next 20 years or so, primarily under Gladstone. So um, you could say that, you know, what Russell tried then with Gladstone, Gladstone was his kind of main deputy, um, laid the foundations for later liberal success. But that's the end, basically, of Russell's career. He's in the House of Lords by then. He has another 10 years left to live, 12 years left to live. But, um, you yeah, know, he carries on arguing for the causes that uh, motivate him, actually, reform and education, basically. Now, when we talked about both Grimmond and Steele, we very much focused on lessons for modern Liberal Democrats. I think Russell being that much further back in history, the lessons are much looser. Uh, but are there any lessons you would draw? So I think that um, I want to end with a couple of quotes, if I can. Mm. Um, but one of them is relevant to the question you just asked about his record. He was always aware that the that a liberal government or a Whig government, it was liberals by the time that uh, he, he would stop being active in politics. Um, they always had to stand for something. There always had to be movement forward. Uh, and actually, I think um, somebody talked about Gladstone. Gladstone it was all, politics was always a crusade. There had to be a cause to fight for. So he was always aware that he had to look for a new issue to take up. And actually, in the 1830s, 40s, it was Ireland when the, the two sort of parties after the Great Reform Act stuff had settled down. Two parties seemed to be moving a bit closer together. But then he became more concerned about uh, religious uh, restrictions and lack of tolerance in Ireland. He took that up. He took up the cause of free trade. He was aware that you had to find a cause to bring the liberal side together and appeal to the country. Uh, and one of the quotes I want to use is from his entry in the Dictionary of National Biography. By the time he ceased to be prime minister in 1852, there was hardly an institution remaining which had not been reformed apart from the army. The anxieties of war and post-war years had yielded to the march of intellect and an almost universal preference for modernity and progress. And he was important in doing that. And I think, you know, Liberal Democrats, we can't ever be concerned just about managing the state. We are a movement for reform. We have to achieve things. We have to change the world. And the other quote, if you'll allow me, mm. is about his own character, which I said was he was, yeah, in many ways, a very attractive character. I think it'd be interesting to meet. Um, but he was also impulsive and he had enormous self-confidence uh, and perhaps should have been deterred a few more times than, than he actually was. Uh, but this is what his friend, the uh, Whig cleric, Sidney Smith, wrote about him. There is not a better man in England than Lord John Russell, but his worst failure is that he is utterly ignorant of all moral fear for there is nothing he would not undertake. I believe he would perform the operation for the stone, build St. Peter's, or assume, with or without 10 minutes notice, the command of the Channel Fleet. And no one would discover by his manner that the patient had died, the church tumbled down, and the Channel Fleet had been knocked to atoms. Dear Lord John Russell, you want to shake the world and be the thunderer of the scene. 
that is not a bad epitaph for someone to have on their political career. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for that, Duncan. I will include links in the show notes to the book chapter uh, that you have done on Lord John Russell and also the 1832 What If chapter that I did for one of your books Excellent. a few years ago. And anyone who wants to find out more about Lord John Russell, such as get an explanation of the widow's might nickname, you can find Duncan, you can tweet him your historical questions at Duncan Brack on Twitter. I am at Mark Pack and this podcast is at Bar Chart Podcast. And look up, look out, as I said, in the show notes or follow up links to what we've discussed. If you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Listener Aperture did just that recently, posting the lovely review. Really appreciate this podcast. It's very balanced and open-minded. I hope, Aperture, you still think that after this episode. Thank you for that kind review, and thank you to everyone for listening. (music) 